0: In uh, Philippians chapter 1, in this morning, right at the end of chapter 1, and we'll kind of finish that part out this morning. I want to talk to you this morning. First, I want to just ask you a question about uh, the things that you own. I just as you start to think, um, everything, every vehicle, property, knickknack, All that type of stuff. If you could think of all of that, uh, every power tool, every piece of fine china or real silverware, what of all of those possessions would you want to pass on to your kids? You could only give them one thing. Okay, not everything. I think often we come and we say, oh, well, my kids will want everything. Not really. They'll probably eBay most of it. Let's just face the facts there. So if you were going to say, there's one thing that I want you to have, what would it be? It's kind of tough. Now, I'm going to change the question. If I was to ask you that same thing, but but, but not thinking about the things that you own in a tangible sense, but all that you have in a non-tangible sense, all of the lessons that you've learned over the years, all of the wisdom that you've acquired, think of what you've learned in business or, or in the classroom or maybe most important, in the school of hard knocks? W- what are the things that you would pass on or what one thing would you say, learn this, learn it well? See, thinking this way makes us start sifting what's really important. What are the things that we really value? What are the things that would, would really benefit my kids or my grandkids what would really bless them this morning at the end of this first chapter this is in a sense what the apostle Paul is doing what he's giving to the community of faith the church there at Philippi and I would say every church through the ages here's what he says in verse 27 and following only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ For his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. If you notice how Paul begins with this, he, he begins with this word, only. Only. If, if there's one thing that he could pass on, this is what it would be. So what does he say? Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of you. I'm going to say two things today, so here's the the first one, if you're one of those note-taking type of people, is this, live as God's people. Live as God's people. Now, the reason I come to that phrase is because there's really only one thing in this passage that is commanded of the people of God, of this church in Philippi, and I would say of our church. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now, I want to take some time to think about that phrase because uh, originally it was really just one word and our translations are trying to capture that. Let your manner of life. That's, that's actually one word that he's, he's commanding to us. If you have other translations, it might read a little bit differently in your Bible and we'll kind of get to why of that in just a moment. But first, before we look into the meaning of this, I want you to see that this is absolutely out of the norm for Paul. This wording that he uses isn't normal. What he's talking about actually is that that he wants our manner of life to to be worthy of the gospel in some sense, that that he wants how we move through this world to be consistent with what we claim to believe about God, how we claim to follow Christ. This is something that he does often. In fact, listen to Ephesians chapter 4. This should sound familiar. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God. To which you have been called. Usually this is exactly how Paul speaks. He speaks of walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, that all all of our lives as we walk through this world, our Christian walk, would demonstrate the value of the gospel. It's a metaphorical way of saying that. And that, that walking is typically how Paul exhorts us, but not here. If you look at verse 27 again, I want to point this out to you. Depending on your translation, you'll see it. Only let your manner of life. The one word that Paul uses there is actually probably as literally as we could translate it, live as citizens. Only live as citizens. If there's one thing, if there's one thing that I could call you to, Paul says, it's this. Live as citizens got to tell you, that is a head-scratcher. Live as citizens. You're telling me, Paul, that the the one thing you want me to understand is how to live in my community well? Philippi was a leading city of Rome. Maybe this is what Paul has in mind. Some people come to this and think, yes, this is exactly what's going on, and Paul elsewhere will tell us that we need to be good citizens, and if you're following Christ faithfully, this is what will be in our society. But see, I think to take this as be good citizens here on earth utterly misses the point. Paul is talking about something so much bigger you see the context of this is that if they're really living as citizens well that they'll strive for the gospel that they'll stand firm in one faith so what in the world is he talking about just turn the page in your bible it might be on the same page and look at chapter 3 verse 20 of philippians say, what in the world is Paul talking about? Why would he tell us to live as citizens? Because here is Paul's vision of citizenship. He tells these Christians, he tells us, he tells Philippi, our citizenship is where? In heaven. He wants to orient the people of God to the fact that they belong somewhere else, that they are called to live as citizens of God's kingdom. Yes, we all reside in earthly kingdoms and we want to be good citizens as we follow Christ, but our our primary goal and our primary focus in our minds and in our hearts and in our souls is to be citizens of God's kingdom. That what we do and how we do it and where we do it and why we do it is always sifted By this question, what's good for that kingdom? Because that's my kingdom. There's another reason, I think, that Paul uses this out-of-the-ordinary language, live as citizens, because citizenship, by its very nature, doesn't focus merely on you. Citizenship is a concept that that has inherent in it this idea that that you live your life in light of others, in a context of others. That you have certain responsibilities to to a community. It may mean here on earth, paying taxes, serving, obeying laws, watching out for neighbors. This is citizenship. And I don't think that this is lost in the wording, but now it's not, remember earthly citizenship, not in physical communities. He's saying in the kingdom of God where your true citizenship is you still have to live this way. You still have to live in light of other people and look around and say you have responsibilities to them as well. See a huge part of this letter as we, as we go over the next couple of months you'll see this a huge part of this letter trying to get people to see that you live in a community of faith and much of your Christian walk has to do with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul says, if I could give you one thing, it's this. Live as citizens of God's kingdom looking to your left and to your right and knowing that you have brothers and sisters who also call that kingdom home that also pledge their allegiance to the Risen Christ. The bottom line is this: you live, you're to live in a continual awareness of your place in this kingdom among other Christians. But Paul gives us what this is going to look like if we carry it out well. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Verse twenty-seven. So that here's the result: so that whether I come and see you, or am absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. See, he gives it to us both positively and negatively. The vision of living as citizens in a healthy way, in a faithful way before God, is that we'll strive for the gospel, we'll stand firm with one another. Throughout the New Testament, this is a huge value, this idea of the people of God standing firm. Almost every book in the New Testament assumes that people are actually going to have struggles in this area. They're going to have trouble standing firm the way they ought to for Christ. 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the church there, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Later in Philippians, he'll say this, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. See, in both of those verses I just read, the the calling to stand firm is a corporate one. That he doesn't just look at one man, he doesn't just look at one woman and say, Now, you make sure that you stand firm. He looks at a community of faith like ours and says, says, Stand firm. Together, look around. Stand firm. Help each other stand firm. Realize who you are and realize you've been called to be part of a body together. If you do stand firm, you're also striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is the corporate reality of this calling, and this is why I say, live as God's people. This is what it means to live as God's people. See, oftentimes, I, I've talked to people, or or, or, or talked to people with relatives who, who walk down this road of saying, I'm a Christian, and I love the Lord, but I hate the church. You, th- you think that's strong language? Literally. This is, this is what I get. And, 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 but then it moves, not not just, I've had bad experiences with the church, and, and, and I don't like it. And, but now it's, I'm just going to do my own thing. I can just follow Christ by myself. No, you can't. Not faithfully. You're, you're called to be part of a community of faith. And you say, well, well those people, they don't help me. They don't benefit me. It, okay, I, I might agree. It doesn't matter. You're called to benefit them. And in fact, isn't it the very character of Christ? Isn't it, isn't it actually Christ-like to respond with love and grace and blessing to those who don't do so to you? You are called to live as God's people, as a Christian person, a faithful follower of Jesus. You are called to be part of a dysfunctional family. There, I said it. Live as God's people. But I, I don't want to stop there. Hopefully, see, if I stop there, if, if I just came and said, live as God's people, uh, live in, in the community in this way, love each other, bless each other, be part of this community of faith, stand firm together. If I just did all of that, I'm just telling you to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and try better. That's not what Paul ever does. So here's the second part, okay? You note takers, live as God's people because of God's gift. Live as God's people because of God's gift. I'm going to go back to verse 27. Only let your manner of life, or only live as citizens. uh, I think the New Living Translation says live as citizens of heaven. Only live as citizens worthily, be worthy of the gospel. Now, this is a huge potential for misunderstanding here, this idea of worthiness of the gospel of Christ, this walking worthy or living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Because people could potentially see this as calling us to to live in such a way that earns the gospel. Make sure that your life is worthy of what you have received in Jesus. That he, he died to forgive you, that, that God's grace is poured out, that, that, that he gives us the Holy Spirit to, to live for his glory. All of that. Live worthily of that. Well, gosh, man, I've got I've to do a lot better because I look at my life and I don't think I am worthy of that. And Utterly misses the point. And comes dangerously close to error. No, this isn't what Paul means when he says, "Live your life worthily of the gospel," or, or, or "live as citizens in a worthy way." No, this this has to do with the value of something. See this this word "worthy." It's if if you could picture it, it's, it's as if uh, there's scales, and on one side are are all of these gospel realities, forgiveness, and and the work of Christ, and Adoption and reconciliation and him redeeming us from the power of our sin and him promising us a, a new home in heaven. All of this, this gospel that we have is on one side of the scale. And it might be heavy and it might be light in your life. If the gospel weighs heavy, it affects your life over here if the gospel is glorious to you and you love it and, and, and you soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus day by day and week by week, then something happens to your life over here. See, that's, that's this word. Live as citizens in a worthy manner of the gospel. Live your lives among the people of God in such a way that it demonstrates the great Weight and value of the gospel of Jesus in your life. I mentioned before Ephesians 4. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Colossians 1. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And see, this is is why I say live as God's people because of God's gift. In a sense, you're living rightly as, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven among your brothers and sisters. Doing that well is a response to this gospel. It's a response to what Christ has done. This is Paul reminding them. He, he's wanting to, to turn their minds from, from how they're to walk forward to, to look back at what Jesus has done. Because it motivates, and it encourages, and it informs how we're to live tomorrow and next week and next year. Generally, this is the way the New Testament does it. This is why for us, the gospel is the center of everything we do. This week, you'll talk about this phrase. I have said it over the years. I fully believe it's true. Uh, In your groups, you can talk about it. Here, here it is: what you're called to do and be as a Christian person is always founded upon who He is, what He has done, is doing, or will do. What you're called to do and be is always based on who He is and what He has done and is doing. That's living worthily realizing God's great action on your behalf but we'll see more <coughs> Excuse me, in this passage about God's great gift he says only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God Now now the question is, we'll pause here and, and, and look at that very last phrase. And your salvation, and that from God. What exactly does Paul mean by this? This from God. Well, two things are mentioned in verse 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you believe in him and to suffer let's deal with the first one in verse 29 let's deal with belief it's important to see what's happening in verse 29 because at the end of verse 28 if you look at your bible at the end of verse 28 he talks about a salvation which is from God and what he says in verse 29 grounds that statement for it's been granted to you to believe What exactly are we dealing with here? What is this believing that has been given to us? I'll admit, I I was actually very surprised as I studied this. I'd never studied this passage in depth, and it surprised me as I looked into this. You see, there's uh, some who say that this right here is God giving the gift of initial faith that are very responding to the gospel as we hear it, as we get saved. For me, 20 years old, and I'm in a church, and for the first time, I'm hearing the gospel. Uh, I had grown up Catholic, and all I saw was stations of the cross, and I knew Jesus died, and he must have been a good man because people worship him. And for the first time, I'm 20 years old, sitting in a gospel-preaching church, and I remember it dawning on me, he did it for me. The point was my sin. He never got that before? I never got that before. So what happened in that moment? What, what happened to me? Some would come and say, say about this text that this is God doing a work, that he's, he's giving it to us to believe, that he's doing a work in our hearts so that we believe, that at that moment God was gifting me this faith to see Jesus. And there's much warrant for that idea in the New Testament, not the least of which is a story about the church in Philippi when it started. Uh, about a woman named Lydia down by the river praying, Jewish woman, and, and it says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul as Paul preaches the gospel. You say, well, that's, she just paid attention. No, 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 the next breath out of Luke's mouth is and she was baptized. This is the Lord opening a heart to believe. But But see, in this verse, when Paul says it's been granted to you not only to believe in him, that it's been given to believe, I don't think he's talking about the initial faith that we exercise, though that might be true. He's talking about us continuing to believe. He's talking about gifting us this faith which continues on. And the wording actually bears this out. If you look at this, this idea, this it's been granted to you to believe. This wording is intentionally meant to focus on the fact that this is an ongoing experience. It's intentionally crafted, the way that Paul says this, to look not just to the initial faith, that moment you turn to Christ, but to look at that life that follows. That five years down the line, you're still believing in Christ, you're still trusting in Christ, you're still standing in the gospel, firm, continuing in faith. That kind of faith has been given to you. It's a glorious gift. That is an important gift. You see, the New Testament pictures saving faith always, always, always as persevering faith. There is never in the New Testament assurance for those who who claimed Christ as Savior once, but then drop Him for some mixed bag of, of New Age beliefs. No, saving faith is a stable faith, and a continuing faith, and a long-suffering faith, and a patient faith, and a hanging-in-there faith. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach unless you believed in vain that is a startling passage and it tells me a couple of things I think the first is that faith that saves is meant to persevere it's meant to keep going it's meant to hang in there and I know I know what you're saying is but my dad or my cousin or my best friend from high school they're in a season right now and and they've really kind of fallen away. Can that happen, Kyle? Yeah, I believe that can happen. But what I'm saying is that that, that in the last estimation Paul says, when you get to the end when you get to the end of, of this life that you've lived and you look back, you'll look at that last day and you'll say He gave me a persevering faith. There were times where I turned off the road but He always brought me back to Him. He always kept me faithful and This is the kind of faith that he gives. The the other thing I learned from from that passage, and and this is scary, there is a vain, empty faith. Did you see that? Unless you have believed in vain. I I I don't want this empty faith. I don't want this vain faith. Here's the glory of what Paul is saying. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should go on believing in him. That's literally how we should translate this. Go on believing in him. Continue believing in him not a one day faith but a faith that lasts a lifetime a lifetime that that goes through the times of struggle the hard times the times of sickness the times of doubting the unholy times the times where you cry out i don't want to do this anymore this is too hard his gift of ongoing persevering faith stays with you through all of those things here's why this made so much sense to me as I studied this, and this was just so awesome. We've already heard this. We heard it a different way, but it was the very first week in Philippians, verse 6, chapter 1. Paul says that he thanks God for them, verse 6, having been convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. This is the same thing. This is saying the same thing that God has given you a persevering, ongoing, continuing, stable faith. He began something in you, and he will complete it if you're in Christ. Live as God's people because of God's gift. This is God's gift we do well to ask a question here. Why would we have this gift? Why would God give this gift of an ongoing, struggling forward, persevering faith? Because of the other gift. Read verse 29. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him or go on believing in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. struggle here for Paul is pretty specific. The struggle for the Philippians was very similar. They were beginning to struggle in a very real way for the gospel itself. Enduring persecutions, walking through those things, and, and the first thing that we would probably say is, whew, glad we don't have to struggle. Glad God hasn't granted us suffering. I, I would say a few things to that. First, The same type of struggle that Paul had may be here soon. And and I don't say that. I'm I'm really not. I'm really not one of these doomsday, hurry-up-rapture guys. That's not me. I'm just saying, realistically, the United States and the freedom that we have is an asterisk in human history in terms of the gospel we should steward it well, we should thank God for it, we should praise God for it, and here's, and here's what I'm doing. I'm praying and, and, and hopefully raising my girls to suffer, because I think they probably will. And I'm telling them that you will not marry a man unless I approve of them. Here's why. Because he better darn well be strong, because he's going to have to lead his family through second in some sense i hope we have this struggle right now not necessarily the persecution we may not have that but i hope we have some struggle because in a sense this struggle is the struggle to advance the gospel the struggle that they were in was to stand firm for the faith in the gospel he talks earlier and he'll talk later about their partnership in the faith That they're trying to advance the name of Christ and the glory of the Son of God through the world. And I hope that to whatever measure, we are suffering in that way. Because it means we're engaged in the fight. Third thing I'll say, and this is the last one, about this suffering. The main point of this passage is that Christians would stand firm and united whatever comes at them. standing firm in the faith will always be a struggle no matter what our form of suffering is. We might endure a different kind of suffering here in the United States in the, in the freedom that we have but there will always always be a struggle to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will always be attacks on how we hold the gospel up in this world. There will always be temptation to to forsake the foundation or kind of weaken the foundation of what we believe. There's always going to be a temptation to sort of start to smooth out the hard edges of truth and the hard edges of the gospel. And that might be our struggle. The point is this, no matter what type or flavor of suffering we're in, God has given it to us so that we might stand up under it. Look at this with me again, verse 29. It has been granted to you to continue believing and to suffer for his sake. That word granted, if you're an underliner, underline that word. You see, the reality is that this is not just merely the word given, okay? It's not just... It's been given to you. Paul had a word for that. He, he could have used a different word for that, a, a very normal, run-of-the-mill word. He didn't use that. He used a word that has at its very root the word grace. Grace, we often define as it's, it's a gift, a blessing, a benefit that we don't deserve, that we don't earn. In fact, this word that he uses is oftentimes used... Uh, in speaking of people giving gifts to one another. And God says about suffering that it has been gifted to you. Your continuing faith has been gifted to you. Your persevering faith has been gifted to you. Your suffering, suffering, is wrapped up with a big bow with one of those little sticky name ticker stickers that says, love God. That's your suffering. A couple of years ago, I was in a, a class <clears throat> at seminary, and uh, we, we got on the subject of, of God's, God's gift and, and, and God's blessings. And it was just really interesting um, to hear people talk about God's gifts and his blessing and people, people talked about material blessings or, or relational blessings and, and, and God gives many of those uh, we talked about praising him for those and then, and then the uh, discussion shifted to, to suffering and, and hard times and struggles that we go through in ministry or, or life or whatever and it was very interesting because immediately the language shifted not from God gave me X, Y, and Z; those were the blessings. But now, well, God allowed. I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm saying that that it really struck me that day because I listened to them talk about struggles, as if almost as if God's hands were a little bit tied. Well, God, He He let this one by. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, what does Scripture say about, let's look at what Scripture says about our, our trials really quick. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And I sat there that day and I'm thinking, why why are we not willing to say what scripture says, that that our sufferings are a gift? I know that's hard, and I know I'm not in in this huge suffering situation, and some of you are, and I don't mean to be insensitive. What I mean to do is encourage you. I want to encourage you. God is at work. You say, it's a dark day, and it's a struggle, and, and some days I can barely get out of bed. God is at work. God has wrapped it up, and it is for your good, and it is for the glory of Christ. And don't ever let anybody say that this just kind of slipped by God and came to you. Everything, 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 everything that happens to you is sifted by the hand of a loving and sovereign Father. It's been granted to you to suffer. God's wrapped it up. It's a gift because God, our God, is up to something much bigger than your happiness. He's up to your holiness. He's not merely working for temporal good; he's working for his own glory. A few weeks ago, we were at a, a conference uh, in the Midwest, and um, this was an offhand comment that was made during a Q and A panel with some pastors, and it stuck. I was working on some of these things, and, and here was this wasn't even original with with this pastor. He was quoting someone else, and I don't know who. He might be dead, so one of those quotes. Here's what he said. God hides his best wine in the cellar of suffering. God hides his best wine in the cellar of suffering. You can approach suffering two different ways. One is to rebel against it and shake your fist in God's face. Or you can stand on the truth of scripture and say, Though I don't see it, and though I may never see it, God is good, and he's in this for my good. Verse 29, I'm going to end here, is interesting if you look at this. He says something twice. I passed over it. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should go on believing and also suffer for his sake. In other words, this persevering belief and and even how you walk through suffering, it's for him. It's for his sake. It's for his glory. It's that Christ, if we want to go back to last week, it's that Christ would be magnified and shown to be glorious in this world. That's what God has done. That's what God is doing live as God's people because this is his great.